thank you for taking the time to come here this morning. Um, I've seen your website. I've seen you're really into conserving the resources that we have on this planet to make sure that our food's better, to make sure that our life is more compatible with the earth we live on. Where were you born, first of all? Auckland, uh, uh, New Zealand, back in 1971. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, my mother was English and my father, um, my father was a Kiwi. Okay. And um, yeah, they basically, they met on a ship um, coming over from the UK, going back to New Zealand w um, when my mother was immigrating right. in 1960, 1965. <coughs> okay. And um, they had what I believe is a mixed marriage. Um, they were both Caucasian. Um, and uh, New Zealand's like a British colony. <coughs> but I lived in the UK for two years myself, and I just couldn't identify with British people. Um, sense of humour was quite different. Culturally, it was really, it was really similar. Um, the currency and the language, uh, I, uh, <laughs> languages and accents were completely different. But your parents, you said they're both from New Zealand? Oh, no. Um, mum was from the UK. Your, English, your, your, English, your yeah. mom and your dad? Uh, no. Um, um, Dad was from Auckland, and okay. my mum so was he's from, from New Zealand. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But is he? So is he actually a native from New Zealand? Uh, no, his uh, I, th no, I both believe Caucasian his, uh, said, his right. uh, I think his father was his grandfather was Irish. Okay. So both my parents were basically um, from the UK. Irish? Whose parent? <coughs> who does not have Irish blood? <laughs> so, but the one thing I want to get up, we should get this up front too. You have a speech impediment, and you've had this from birth, right? Um, I've had it since I was in primary school. Um, it started with grade. Do you know what grade? Uh, probably about um, second or third grade. Yeah, yeah um, since I was about six. Did, yeah. the, did you ever find out why it started? Um, yeah. Uh, oh, no, I've got a couple of um, um, theories about it, though. But okay. um, basically the core of it is um, I'm a, a left-handed male. Okay. And left-handed males are about uh, four times more likely to have a speech impediment than, um, than uh, f females. Um, it's just the way that the brain's wired. Um, the right-hand side of the brain controls the left-hand side of the body, and I think uh, vice versa. <coughs> and for left-handed people, it goes like that. Uh, the left-hand side of the body, I think, controls the left-hand, uh, the left-hand side of the brain, sorry. Right. I think controls the left-hand side of the body. And um, um, for right-handed people, there's a cross. With left-handed people, it goes straight down. Straight down. And that apparently causes some neurological issues, I think. <coughs> but I thought they were mostly considered more creative, and also, oh. <laughs> no, no, really. And Obama was left-handed, okay. or not was, is left-handed. Yeah, okay. So it could be the reason why he tend to take his time when he spoke. Mm. But I've seen most left-handed people I've known have been very creative. Mm. Don't you think? And um, you haven't seen yeah, that part. Th um, um, yeah, um, I think that case could be argued. Okay. Um, but personally, yeah, I've found that um, that because I've had a speech impediment, um, my verbal expression's been uh, has been suppressed. But my person, the way that I express myself has come out in completely different ways. For example, I was heavily into dancing many years ago, and I'm a uh, professional writer. I've been a, a professional writer now for 20 years. So instead of expressing myself uh, um, well verbally, I'm doing it um, through the written word. It's like this door is partially blocked, so the pressure comes out in a different way, or the talent comes out. It, the expression comes out okay. in a different way. Right. Um, yeah, it's kind of like how if um, if someone's physically disabled, they might not they might not have the use of their legs, and if they're in a wheelchair, they'll be really strong. They'll have really strong biceps. 
the, that's kind of the way how the body uh, it adjusts when one part's weak, other parts become strong. Mm. I think it's good. So as a little <coughs> kid when you were growing up, but first of all, you, so you were born in Auckland, you told me about your mom and dad, mm -hmm. basically it was a mixed marriage, mm -hmm. but only because your father's Irish <laughs> and your mother oh, is from uh, England. Dad was a Kiwi, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Kiwi, <laughs> he was a Kiwi, yeah, yeah. yeah. But did he, did he relate to his Irish side? Uh, no. <laughs> Not at all, so he just saw himself <laughs> no. as a Kiwi? Yes, yeah. Okay. Did you grow up, you grew up in Auckland? Yes, uh, for 26 years. Um, then, um, then my um, father came down with cancer. And then my mother died of uh, cancer the following year. This is like the 1998 and 1999. So I lost both my parents within um, 11 months. That was life changing. Um, oh, and how, uh, how old were you at that time? I was, uh, I think I was uh, 28, I think. Um, I think I was about 28, yeah, yeah. And you yeah. have an older brother? Yes. Two and a half years older than yes. you? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, that basically freed me up. Um, I wasn't so um, New Zealand focused, so to speak. <coughs> But were you li were you there? You were still mm. in New Zealand at that time. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, um, um, I was actually living in Brighton, um, in the uh, the um, the um, popular town on the south coast of England, where my mother was born. When um, when did you move there? Oh, I moved there in 1997. So how old were you then? Uh, I think I was um, 26 or 27. I think. Yeah, I think it was about that time. Yeah, and I moved to the UK. Uh, and many young Kiwis they do what's called the OE overseas experience and for white Kiwis like me, um, Pakia we're called, um, the UK is normally the first stop basically straight to London and then take off and use London as <coughs> a vantage point to tour um, typically Western Europe okay. and either find a job or head back via India or Asia wherever. So you see you've done <coughs> it. I but you, but everyone tends to go back to New Zealand. Uh, many, yeah, most. I think most Kiwis do go back to, to New Zealand for. Yeah, it's just a wonderful place to live. That's what I've heard. It's a wonderful place to live. That's what I've heard. But um, yeah, I've been here for twenty years. I haven't gone back yet. Um, so, so what was it like for you growing up as a kid? I mean, were you more academic or were you more physical? <coughs> um, I was completely average. <laughs> I wasn't special in anything. Okay. Um, yeah, just a com completely. Um, I, I went to um, university. My um, um, dad was sort of really keen to push my brother and I to go to varsity because his parents didn't have the money to send him. Um, so my brother and I went to Auckland University and both got uh, science degrees and mathematics. Um, both got the same degrees? Uh, yeah, science degrees, yeah. What, um, what, kind of, what did your father do? He, was a, um, he started off his career as a uh, boat builder. Um, basically back in the days in the early 1950s when boats used to be built from wood, uh, a clinker, basically where planks would be curved right. to fit the shape of a hull. Right. And my dad used to basically uh, build wooden boats for the New Zealand dockyard, which uh, supports the Navy. How big are the boats? Do you not remember oh, how big these they were? were like, these, were, um, uh, these were boats, for um, fairly large boats, maybe 40, 50 feet long. So he had a team, a group, a tour, you he know. He was part of the boat building team. Bo okay, that's what I'm saying, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Um, that was back in the day. Did you um, ever go down there with him to see him build I, them? Oh, um, no, I used to go down to where he was um, working, Devonport Dockyard. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, um, I've got some very old memories of his office mm -hmm. um, and going around some of the, um, the uh, sheds where he used to work, like prior to when I was born. But then the um, Devonport Dockyard, where he was working, sent him to the UK to recruit men 
from Plymouth Dockyard in the south of England to move with their families back to Auckland to work for Devonport Dockyard. Okay. So my dad started um, going to the UK. Um, in the 1960s, he was sent to the UK, I think, twice on two-year contracts both times, I think. Okay. And then my mother, not my mother then, but she, um, uh, she was in her mid-twenties and she decided to uh, leave England and um, immigrate to New Zealand. And she got on a, a cruise ship from Southampton at the south of uh, England yeah. on the same ship that my dad was um, going back home on. Okay. Um, in 1965, they met in a, a cabin party on day two out of Southampton, um, hit it off, and the rest is history. <laughs> and they stayed together the whole time? Uh, yeah, they had a shipboard romance going around Cape Horn. They stopped at Cape Horn, they stopped at uh, Sydney, I, I believe, and then the last stop was Wellington. And they got off, um, and that was at my mother um, stayed. Like when you were growing up, did you, how many times did you hear that story about your mother and father meeting? Oh, um, yeah, quite often, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was really good because that helped me in my marriage with my wife, who's um, um, Japanese, she's basically, I'm um, like Tokyo born. Um, that really helped because I've known my whole life that my mother is from the opposite side of the planet, like the far side, couldn't get uh, much Any further, um, right. further from Auckland to the UK. And yeah, I've known that that's been a really deep, um, part of my awareness for my whole life that my mother was not from the country I was born she was from the far side of the planet and when I met my wife who's like Japanese she's only from halfway around the world so it's That's been, true. it's been mental mentally it's been um, um, easier I think for me to form a marriage partnership with my wife who's only from Japan halfway around the world from New Zealand than it probably was for my father who married someone from the other side that's of true. the planet. I can imagine. Um, yeah, so it's like this sort of really makes me think that what our parents do and what they don't do is absolutely critical to how children think and grow up and what they believe. Oh. Just knowing, just being aware of what our parents did and what they didn't do. Um, and the older I get, the more I realize that I'm becoming more like my parents. There's not much I, that I can do about it, but I'm really happy about that. Yeah. That's a good thing. <coughs> so going through mm. school, so you knew you mm. knew that you were like mm. regular compared mm. to everybody else. You <coughs> went to university. Yep. You did that. Your first time out of Auckland was to go to England. Uh, that was my first time to live overseas, yeah. Overseas, yeah. and you were 26? 26, 27, I think, yeah. 27. Yeah, yeah. And what did you do when you went to England? Oh, I um, got a job with um, um, Filofax UK. Which makes no, those, I remember those paper yeah, everyone had everybody had a Filofax. Yeah, and the back in the eighties, Filofax used that's to be like a PR thing. That's <laughs> like but a that was symbol. that was like having yeah. an iPhone today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you had all your information <coughs> in that Filofax. Yeah. yeah, I had. And that I used to work for the production factory, helping to actually collate the pages to be put in into Filofaxes. And then I was d I was working on a production line, uh, um, like making Filofaxes for about I don't know how long it was now, maybe six months. And then I told the factory manager that I've got a university degree. And she was like, wow, I didn't know that. And I got a promotion basically the next week from the production line in, inside the factory to the main office um, and became a, a production planner, helping to basically calculate the numbers of the file effects to be produced by the staff on the factory floor. After how long? Six mm -hmm. months? About six months or so. I just <laughs> You just happened to bring it up. Just mentioned to the factory you weren't trying. To, you weren't trying to get it. Oh, no, 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 no. No. Um, yeah, and I just got a uh, promotion like within a week, bang. 
Wait, wait, wait. Uh, I'm sure. Well, what about the people down on the line? I'm sure they weren't too happy about that. Well, I kept on having lunch with them because they okay. were my friends. Right, I was yeah, going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these, there was no problem? No. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no obvious problems, so, yeah. <laughs> but they were mom. Um, I made some really good friends. Okay, I'm sure you did. On the factory floor, and I continued having lunch with them and, until I left. Yeah, so how I long were you there after uh, that? I think I was there for about a year or so. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. <coughs> Mm. Uh, yeah, and then I was in the UK for 20 months, um, yeah, and then went back because my dad, um, my mother uh, um, was diagnosed with cancer, so I basically told my boss that I'm going back to New Zealand, <coughs> and um, I uh, 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 may resign, and I did, yeah. <coughs> did you, did your mm. mother and father, were they smokers? Uh, no, 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 no. What kind of cancer? Oh, yeah, well, um, yeah, and my dad came down with cancer first, he had, um, um, uh, blood cancer. I, I forget what the name okay. of it. It's a. Um, it's a really uh, well known. Lupus. Lupus. Uh, no, it's actually um. it was um, um, myelofibrosis. Myelofibrosis, okay, which is yes. a type of cancer where the um, bone marrow stop mm -hmm. producing red blood cells. Um, uh, um, leukemia, basically. Yeah. Leukemia, right? <coughs> and he was diagnosed with uh, this myelofibrosis condition about 30 years ago, and he was given about two years to live, but he lived for uh, I think it was about 12 years. He was like. Way out of what the usual life expectancy. Yes. Yeah, pattern. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, what do you think he did <coughs> that changed him? What was his attitude about having cancer, having oh, leukemia? Um, he, what was his attitude? Yes, he, I mean, that's yeah. The, don't um, you think it's what made the difference? He, I think it was mainly just hope. I don't think he wasn't religious at all. He, um, he just, he just kept going, and I think he was just lucky. But yeah, um, so my father finally died in um, March uh, 1998, and then my mother came down with cancer. We heard about that about eight months later, um, and yeah, I was in the UK, my bro and my brother called me and said, uh, yeah, mum's got cancer. And I think, uh, from what I've been reading, that that essentially was caused by a broken heart, which may sound kind of, um, may sound a bit kind of strange, but I think what happens is when a couple's been married for a long time. When one of them dies, it can cause such grief that it uh, physically affects the immune system. <coughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree 100%. And no. I think that's what happened with my mum because she had no major health problems for her entire life. Mm -hmm. Nothing. No, um, no major problems at all. <coughs> um, and she died six months she after? She died 11 months after 11 my months dad after died. Yeah, which was, that was pretty tough. Right. But there was character building, just putting it mildly. Okay. Um, Were you there with her the whole time? I was uh, holding mum's hand when she died, but I was oh. um, didn't get back home in time when my uh, for, for, for my dad's passing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just couldn't get a flight back. Mm. Was your brother there? Yes. Yeah, yeah, he okay, was, yeah, so yeah, yeah, each yeah. parent has always had someone. Yeah. Was your brother there when your mother passed? Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, was there yeah, too? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 I mean, w I was just telling someone the other day that it's not so much the destination it's the journey, because the destination is the same for all of us. It's called death. <laughs> yes. But the journey is something yeah. that we decide to make yeah. up. Mm. So enjoy the journey. Mm. And no, there's no guarantee mm. as to how much time you're going to have here. Mm. Even if a doctor tells you. Mm. My yeah, father yeah, was yeah. told he had three years. Yeah. lived for 15. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I don't yeah. think anyone can tell you. Yeah. So. Uh, what you just mentioned about um, enjoying the, the journey, that's exactly what my dad said just before I left for the UK. Um, enjoy the journey. And it took me about 20 years until I finally f figured out exactly what he meant. And I think what 
he meant was basically, don't just think about the destination we, where um, you plan to get to, enjoy the journey. And that, that has meaning on every single level. Doesn't it? Enjoy the journey, enjoy the things that go wrong, enjoy the things that go right, and enjoy the people that you meet and the experiences that you have. Get a kick from the pathway from A to, from a to, to where you want to go. Don't just think about where you want to go. That's why your father <coughs> didn't hear the doctor, didn't even believe in it. He said, fine, that's, that's what you want to assume. But I'm going to enjoy this journey. <coughs> I have to go there anyway. <laughs> so he, and he wasn't ready to leave in two years, regardless of what it should have been. Neither was my father. That's, that's what I was asking you. What kind of attitude did he have so he had a journey attitude? Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, was he was sort of really well-traveled. Um, was he? Both my parents were like, yeah, um, really well-traveled. Um, yeah, and my father said um, to my brother and I uh, that before you get married, make sure that you travel the world, because when you get married, you probably won't have time. Did, did you both do um, that? I've been to um, um, 36 countries so far. <coughs> um, yeah. Um, well, run them off real quick. Hmm? Run off the most interesting ones real quick. Oh, I'm sure they all um, were, but still. Oh, yeah, I've been to Austria, uh, where I went to a, 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 two at a, a Nazi concentration camp. Been to Corfu, uh, the little island in Greece. Um, France, I've toured the, um, the Beaujolais region, where um, the Beaujolais wine that's really popular here comes from. Um, yeah, and I've been to Switzerland, where my mother was working for Nestle back in the 1960s. That's one of the most beautiful countries, I think. And Isn't also, it? it's postcard beautiful. It's postcard, yeah. And also in Norway, um, yeah. I've got a pen friend there who um, introduced my wife to me back in 1995, <coughs> and I went to Norway to stay with her for a month back in 1997 from England. Is she Norwegian? Yes, yes, okay. yeah, yeah, yep. Um, she's a really close friend, and Norway was stunning. And my um, father travelled there in the 1960s. Loved it so much that he named our house in Auckland, and Bergen, which is a town in uh, the southwest coast of Norway. Mm. He loves this, um, the country so much, yeah. And he said that if he could, if he had to, if he couldn't live in New Zealand, he would want to live in Norway. <coughs> because of the scenery and uh, yeah, the it's, land Yeah, it's just itself. a stunningly beautiful country, yes. yeah, it's, yeah, fantastic. Really scenic. Isn't it, funny, isn't it funny how some of the most beautiful places on this planet where people live, yeah. they don't try to really tell people about it? They kind of keep it quiet. Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly how I treat my country. Um, I don't want too many people to know about New Zealand because <laughs> I don't have want too many people. But you don't have to worry about it. New Zealand won't <coughs> let you in. They won't let you in. They're, they're becoming almost like Japan with one of the most, the, one of the strictest immigration laws. Because if you go to New Zealand, they ask you, what are you bringing? We know what you want. Mm. What are you bringing to benefit the people yes, yeah, here? Yeah, 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 yeah. They'll yeah. ask you that in New Zealand in a heartbeat. <coughs> mm, yeah, the skills and money, basically. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. If you have those two <coughs> things, welcome. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and we're gonna, but you're on a trial. <laughs> it's not just welcome right away. You're on a trial. Let's make sure everything works out. Mm. That is something. Because I have good friends that live in Auckland. Okay. Yeah. They're there. I haven't been to New Zealand yet. I've been to Australia. Oh, go, go, go. I, I do have to go because yeah. I've seen a lot of it. Now with the advent of YouTube and stuff, you can feel like you're there because you can see every yeah. single nook and cranny almost. Yeah, virtual travel is great. Isn't I'm going to be doing more of that, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is. Yeah. 
And they're making it that way too with these <coughs> new with these new um, things you can put on the virtual mm -hmm. virtual reality. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. <coughs> but I'm taking them off because to me that's almost like TikTok. You're there, but you're not there, and it stimulates your mind. And then you take them off. You started you started one time in the day. I did this once because I bought a set. My son had me do it, and I remember it must have been twelve o'clock. And when I took them off, it was six in the evening. And I said, I'm never going to do that. I can't do this. But you lost track of time. I did. Yeah. I was in this virtual reality, and I was doing so yeah, much. Yeah. I said, okay, I'm not going to, I can't do this. <laughs> I'm not ready for this. I have too much I want to do in reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. So <coughs> right now you, you're, you're doing the sustainable living, um, farming? Urban farming, basically, yeah. Urban farming. Yeah, right. Urban farming, yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. What got you into it, Oh, yeah, it's, it's been a, one, a hell of a journey. So good. Um, it's continual, isn't it? Uh, yes, it basically kicked <laughs> off um, um, as a result of the Tohoku earthquake. Um, yeah, uh, March February, uh, March, 11. Uh, two uh, yep. yeah. uh, 20, uh, yeah. twenty, no, twenty eleven. Uh, uh, twenty eleven. Yeah, basically, yes. uh, just over ten years ago now, and that uh, um, earthquake happened about two and a half weeks after a killer quake hit uh, Christchurch, in the um, that's right, that's right, uh, New Zealand's. Um, um, South Island and my auntie was living there at the time and um, she had to sort of quite a bit of house damage like splits down the walls and um, split in her um, um, uh, front path and so on yeah and um, and my cousin who was um, in Christchurch at the time this was um, fe February 22nd 2011 um, 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 yeah my cousin was in the tax office in the s center of Christchurch when that quake hit and uh, the uh, Christchurch TV building, which is just across the road, uh, basically collapsed. That had the most uh, people. Um, that had the most basically um, the most casualties was right there. Um, was inside that building. And my cousin, he basically rushed out of the tax office and climbed up what was left of the Christchurch uh, TV uh, um, TV building. And he finished up um, pulling out bodies, including um, uh, um, I heard. Um, um, bodies of um, Japanese students who were studying in a language school inside that building. And my cousin's never been here. I don't think he's been outside um, the country. But that was a very strong connection. And then the Tohoku quake hit uh, in March. And those two quakes, they just made me realize and think that if a massive quake hit Tokyo, which it could at any time, even today, um, if a quake of that kind of magnitude, like Mag 9, hit Tokyo and destroyed supermarkets and destroyed apartments and everything, and roads that uh, food supply trucks traveled, uh, traveled down got blocked, I just thought, and where would food come from? Mm -hmm. And I had no answer, which freaked me out. It totally freaked me out. Um, at that time, my wife and I, our daughter was, I think she was about three years old, and I think there would be nothing worse than having a young child crying out for food and water. Where were you living at the time? Uh, t uh, um, Tokyo, yeah. But where in Tokyo? Um, North Tokyo, Akutsuka. Uh, we lived sort of um, really close to the Saitama border. Yeah, so I'm saying, because so um, Tokyo's 23 prefectures, yeah, so yeah. when people say Tokyo, you could be <laughs> out in the country, basically. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. In yeah, the yeah, way, yeah, so yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying. But this yeah. is, yeah. Yeah, so I basically had that question, well, <laughs> where would food come from? And I had no answer, so I thought, right, that's not good enough. I've got to fix this. And so I just thought, okay, where could food come from? If 
our local supermarket was just destroyed and we couldn't and we had no access to food so I thought uh, maybe at home maybe if I had some plants at home so I went out and I purchased some flower pots and some soil and a packet of spinach seeds and sowed the seeds in a pot and a few weeks later I had some spinach uh, some spinach leaves growing and I was like wow this is a pretty amazing stuff this is like magic so I bought some more flower pots and some more soil and planted and um, sowed some more seeds and um, like within a few months I had a mini back garden of um, vegetables growing in pots. Uh, this was back in 2012. Uh, oh, in 12, the spring. Like yeah, 2012, yeah. yes. And then my wife said, oh, you should rent a plot in a local uh, community garden. And we're lucky our town's got about 45-ish community gardens, so I rented a plot um, in 5,000 yen for a plot that's uh, three meters wide by about five meters long. So it's slightly wider than one standard car parking space. Um, 5,000 yen to rent that for 10 months. This and back in- 5,000 yen for 10 months? 10 months, yep. From the uh, middle of March until the end of January the following year. And in my first year of growing food and considering I'd never grown anything prior to 2012, I had no experience at all. Um, I just bought a whole lot of seeds and pl and uh, uh, um, uh, um, sowed them. Bought some tomato seedlings and some cucumber seedlings, and within a f and within and by the time that um, summer rolled around, about June, July, I was swimming in tomatoes and lettuces and herbs and cucumbers. And in my first year, I grew about sixteen hundred tomatoes f of eight plants and about six or so hundred cucumbers off eight plants. And I was handing them out to my neighbors and giving and taking tomatoes to my workmates and my wife was taking tomatoes to her workmates. And I became a, um, a food producer in the first year, which blew me away because I, I, I mean like um, Tokyo with most people, it's just, it's just concrete everywhere. Uh, there's no farms anymore. And I was amazed to have like become a food producer in a place like Tokyo. So you mean you were actually receiving an income from doing this? I was um, giving away food. Giving uh, away yeah, food, yeah. okay. Um, part of it, the community garden rules is that you can't actually sell, sell okay, food. Sell but I think, I think quite a few people Simply, do. I'm sure they do. Yeah, yeah. And so that was a really big inspiration. And then I just, and then, and one day my daughter came to the garden with me and I gave her like a packet of seeds and I showed her. How old was her. she? How old was she? Uh, she was about four. <laughs> and I showed her how to sow some seeds and she just dug a little hole in the soil and sprinkled the seeds and then covered them with soil and she picked it up bang just like that and I thought I just taught someone how to grow food and prior to that I've I've had zero teaching experience in my whole life I've never taught English like many people do never taught anything um, and but I found I just taught my daughter how to grow food and she was about four and so I thought I can teach kids I can teach children. So then I um, got in touch with the founder of Tokyo International School, um, Patrick Newell, and asked him, does your school grow food? And he said, no, we don't, but we're interested. Would you like to come in? So I went in and I met the, um, met the uh, de deputy head of school and covered his desk with all these photos I had taken of the food I'd been growing in my community garden um, um, earlier that year and he basically hired me on the spot to teach and I had only gone in and I said oh I would like uh, um, could I s set up like about 10 planter boxes at your school 
sow some seeds and see how things go. I was not thinking about teaching, but when he um, saw what I had done, he said, um, would you like to teach our students? And I was like, I'm not comfortable with this. I've had a speech problem most of my life. I've got zero teaching experience, but what the hell, I'm going to go for it. And you and went did, for and it. And I did. We did, we did we, we, not, right, not right at the spot. I'm sure you went no, home and you talked to your wife. <laughs> I did, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm what I'm saying. Uh, I'm gonna, I yeah. mean, tell it like it is. But you were, you were nervous and you told him no at first. You said, oh, think about it. Um, I, I think I thought about it for about two days and I got, okay. got back to him and said yes, but I need to come up with some lessons. Okay, right. right so right. I spent the next three months nearly killing myself working really late hours and I came up with 10 um, urban farming lessons so that I would have something to actually teach as part of a new um, urban farming curriculum for the school. And I went in there and I taught them and, um, I, and they kept on asking me back for six years. Um, and then I was You've done it for six, six years, years straight, for six yeah, years. yeah, yeah, until I think 2018. <laughs> um, and yeah, that school's that's, uh, it's an interesting case. They've got no exposed soil at school. The entire campus grounds is covered with concrete. Uh, so we just used the fences. We just basically hooked up flower pots to the fence okay, right, and grew right. vertically. Right, um, right. Um, So-called um, uh, vertical gardening. And that was your first time doing that. Was this. my first time there. Yep. And then I got into other schools. Uh, I was just teaching at one school every um, 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 season for about eight years until 2019, I think it was. And then were you doing this alone, or did you have assistance? Just by myself. Okay. Yeah. And prior to when I started teaching at Tokyo International um, at to uh, Tokyo International School, um, urban farming was not a subject at all at that kind of school. Um, yeah. So I've introduced it now to 15 different um, international schools around tell Tokyo. Tell me, tell me, who are they? Uh, Sacred Heart, Tokyo International School, Seisen uh, International School, and Phoenix House, um, Nishimachi International School, and um, um, the British School. I just ran a really intense one-week um, project at the British School last month where I'd, uh, my partner and I we taught. Oh, now you have uh, a partner. We taught over a thousand students in five days. Okay, so you had to get someone out. <laughs> oh, so you have a partner I, I couldn't, now. couldn't do it by myself so anymore. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so when did you bring on the partner? How many years oh, were you uh, into it? Um, Richard Mayers. He's from um, New York, um, okay. and I got him on board in um, March last year. He so you, so you did the first six years just alone. I've done the first eight years by eight myself. Eight years by yeah, yourself. Eight years, yeah. So you said, okay, look. Time to spread this around oh, a little bit. Oh yeah. Well, I'm only one person with 24 hours <laughs> in a day, and um, I, there's, there's just too much demand now. It's good. It's really. It's becoming a main subject um, in the schools. That's it's nice. Well, yeah. There's now three schools that have now um, integrated um, my um, urban farming training into their curriculums. Three, and that's going to keep on going up. Which, sure. which schools are those? Um, it's um, uh, CSN. CSN. Um, right. uh, um, um, Tokyo. International School right. and, um, and Phoenix House, and Phoenix yeah, House okay. which just opened last year. Yeah. And what they've done, I think, is they've incorporated um, um, urban farming teaching into their uh, science curriculum because plant biology is part of science. That's right, that's right. So that's oh, right. yeah. Albert Japan, too. Albert Japan, Albert Japan sort of yes. very close to where Thank I live. I've been teaching there now for four years, right. um, and their gardens keep on getting bigger each year. And um, yeah, that's been good. I've been. Um, 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 getting their kids to basically um, grow food, not just for themselves, but also to donate a lot of their food to um, Second Harvest Japan Food Bank. 
That's um, um, Charles Charles Majilton. Charles yeah. Charles yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So part of my program that I run at these schools is to base is I get the kids involved in community support, basically to teach them how to grow food without chemicals, and then get them to um, uh, set set up what I call um, donation gardens, which might be a plot or a bunch of planter boxes, and we, we allocate either uh, a plot or some planter boxes as um, donation gardens where whatever they grow in that space is going to be um, donated. And that gets them to think, right, it gets them to think, right, we're not just growing food for ourselves, we're actually doing it partly to support the, the community because the food that we're growing in our donation gardens will be donated to Second Harvest Japan Food Bank, which gives it away to homeless people, gives it away to um, single mums and refugees. And that's what's happening, it's wonderful. We get instant impact, instant impact, because the donated food gets used on the same day. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. Well, tell me this, John. Okay, my question is this. Okay, you have these planters. Let's say you do live in a concrete jungle and you don't have any place, any dirt, yeah. but you have the planters, you have this going. How many times can you use that same soil? Or what do you uh, need to give it mm. to continue? Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. How's that go? Um, you can normally use uh, soil um, safely for about one year. Uh, then depending on... So it's just on one plant. How many times? Uh, 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 two seasons. Two seasons, um, okay. So you can do it. Japan's got two seasons, basically. Otherwise, all season. the nutrients in it are gone. Yes, yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah, because the plants basically extract the, the nutrients um, through, the, um, right. through the roots. Through the root, right. So if you're growing tomatoes in a plot for one season, then all of the nutrients in the soil that tomato plants need will be extracted. Or exactly. So th this is where crop um, rotation comes in useful. If you're growing tomatoes in one plot one season, grow them somewhere else the next season. But what do you put in that plot? This we can use what's left, what nutrients are left for what kind of plant? Um, oh, um, the, uh, yeah, well, the, um, if you are, for example, growing tomatoes in one plot, um, if you grow something else like spinach or cabbage, whatever, they'll be extracting different nutrients. Okay, so it still has the, the nutrients necessary mm. for the spinach is still there. Um, Hopefully, yeah, but because the tomato um, doesn't take it. No, y yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, and um, but the key way to do it is just to replace those nutrients by adding compost. Okay. Natural compost. Right. From so from what? From mm. old plants and from kitchen scraps, things like apple peels and right, old plants that you throw out from your kitchen. You can mix that with coffee grinds, tea bags, soil, plant tea leaves. Coffee grinds and tea bags. Yes. But the thing I'm thinking about is this, John. If you say this stuff scraps from kitchen. That could be produce and foods that are highly enriched with chemicals and other substances that you may not, you know uh, what I mean? Yes, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. how do you take yeah, care of that? Yeah, well, um, and that's, that's a really good question, Lance. Um, the way to get around that is to basically grow your own food not using chemicals so that the old plants that you eventually end up with that uh, were grown with no chemicals, you, you compost those. So your compost bin gradually becomes totally natural as you okay. put more plants into the compost bin that were grown without chemicals until you get to the point where your compost is, is completely natural okay. and the compost that you create you put back on, onto your garden right. and then you have created a totally natural cycle, cycle you've got cycle. rid of the chemicals. But then you can't, <laughs> see I'm, I'm just trying to run in my head right now so I'm thinking this way because Japan has been known for decades to be one of the heaviest users mm. of 
pesticides, yes, sure. unnatural yeah. chemicals and everything yep. in the soil. Mm -hmm. There's no way to grow a tomato that's that straight. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. They don't come out like that, mm. basically. Japan has really overdone mm -hmm. it with their chemical use. Mm. That's what I think for the most part. Mm. What about, <laughs> it's, it's a cycle thing that I'm just thinking in my mind. I haven't thought it out as well <laughs> as I'm sure you have. But you have human waste, you have cows, you have other pets and stuff. But it depends on what they've eaten as to what they're going to yeah. oh expel. Yes. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yep. Yep. Yeah, so, um, so how do you keep that cycle yeah. natural? Yeah, um, well, if you don't, um, 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 many farmers do use cow manure and pig manure too. But what are um, you feeding those pigs? Yeah. What are you feeding well, those that's cows? That's the whole point. Right. Uh, what you're feeding them. Right. Um, does it contain chemicals or does it not contain um, chemicals? And exactly. the goal for, um, for um, uh, um, farmers who want to produce natural food is to basically get rid of the chemicals. And that's a process. That's a gradual process. Um, basically, you just stop using chemicals as much as possible mm -hmm. so that the compost that you create doesn't contain chemicals and then you put that that natural uh, compost back onto your garden to produce plants that also don't uh, that don't contain chemicals okay so you can get rid of all of the chemicals basically how long would it take um, I've never done it myself I'd have to talk to a farmer but I'd say within maybe two years two years then yep. you could two pretty years. much yep. say that you're clean yep. but you're gonna see the difference immediately anyway with your first plant, the uh, fact that yes, you didn't yes, yeah, put yeah, a lot yeah, of chemicals yeah. in it. And you'll notice it with the taste. And I know is, that. And this is like one of the big uh, things that really hooked me to growing my own food was the taste. It's a big deal. And I'm sure you've tried um, organic food. Yes. Um, and you'll know that it, it tastes, it, it's actually got taste. It's actually got taste. And it's the natural taste, the natural mm -hmm. flavors, right. um, especially tomatoes. And one of the big things that I've really learned about growing my own food naturally is that when you grow food without chemicals, it simply tastes better. Doesn't it? And you know when you have a big salad, like a cob salad, and you get the salad dressing, which will be cob salad dressing, <laughs> and you pour that onto your salad, that salad dressing contains chemicals. If your salad leaves have been grown commercially, they most likely um, like contain chemicals too. Which means that you're pouring on salad dressing that contains chemicals onto your leaves that were grown and they contain chemicals too. It's a um, double hit of chemicals. And, and commercially produced food that has been sprayed with poisonous chemicals, it won't taste as good as naturally um, grown food. So you'll automatically think, I've got to add some flavor. Grab that salad dressing and put it on. It's all bad news. And the way to get around that is you just grow your own food or purchase organic food and it will taste better and hopefully to the point where it will taste so good that, that your leaves will taste so good you won't need the salad dressing. Exactly. And then you have completely cut out the chemicals. I have to tell you the story, John. My son's wife and I went to the States to visit my mother and we don't use salad dressing at home basically because we try to get organic food. And we started to eat the salad that she gave us. And she, of course, put this mm -hmm. salad dressing on top of it. And we were eating it. And she said, what about the dressing? So we don't use dressing. Mm. Their produce tastes like cardboard. Mm. And then you put all this sugar dressing on yeah, it yeah. to make it taste like something. It was difficult for us to eat. Yeah. It was really hard to eat. We've, we didn't put the sugar and stuff on there. We mm. just took this <coughs> cardboard, like mm. lettuce and celery. It was just horrible. Yeah. 
A friend of mine, <coughs> another story, a friend of mine just sent me 15 kilos of rice grown without any chemicals. My <coughs> wife can never eat regular rice again because it's so <coughs> beautifully, <coughs> so tasty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, that's the thing. it yeah. is delicious. Yeah, yeah um, that's the thing. And it sort of leads on to a much bigger issue, which is, is um, 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 organic food. And the more that I um, thought about this, the more that I realized that um, 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 organic food, it's what our grandparents ate, but they didn't call it organic. It they didn't have a label. They didn't have a label. They, they didn't need food. to. They, they it's just, just food. food. That was really food. food. And uh, organic, this so-called um, <laughs> um, organic food, it's how humans have been growing food since the dawn of time until about the mid-1950s when commercially produced uh, um, fertilizer went mainstream. And that fertilizer came out of factories and it contained chemicals. That's when cancer rates started to spike in the mid-1950s. That's when everything started going wrong with the food system. And the point is that now we have this term organic. And our, our grandparents and every generation before them never had that term. No they just used to call it food. And the point here is, Lance, that the whole definition of the word food has been completely flipped. It's been completely flipped. The natural food now has a label, and the commercially produced food that it's is considered filled food. with chemicals is now just simply called food. And what we need to do is to f just think, right, the stuff that we now call food has been sprayed with chemicals. It's toxic. It is actually toxic. It causes cancer. It causes um, 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 food-based um, toxins can cause a whole host of allergies. All allergies, stuff you, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. And what we need to realize is that organic doesn't need a it doesn't need a label. It's real. It's <laughs> it's the real deal. That's and what they're basically trying to test. Because some of you have to be careful because they can say that and it may not be the truth. Mm, 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 yeah, yeah. But that, you're right, John. I think we should now start thinking organic means food. Mm. The other stuff, yeah, yeah, be yeah. Qu really question it. Yeah, <laughs> and so my mission with all uh, my uh, the ten years um, to date that I've been um, teaching urban farming um, without chemicals is to basically try and get as many people as possible uh, trained up and motivated to grow food naturally, like our grandparents did, using just uh, soil and sunshine and seeds, nothing else, no sprays, no chemicals. So I'm basically trying to get people to produce food the old way. So it's like taking food production backwards in order to move forward sustainable, uh, sustainably. Mm -hmm. Because we need to cut down the chemicals big time. Uh, we really do. Uh, they're, they're permeating everywhere. And, and the simple act of um, sowing seeds without using chemicals and um, growing food without using chemicals, that is probably the easiest, simplest thing that we can do to make the biggest difference to the planet. And to ourselves. It's, and to ourselves, our health, yes. self-sufficiency, disaster preparedness, because having your own garden is a survival strategy, having a local supply of um, uh, food that's part of a survival strategy. Mm -hmm. um, yep. The simple act of um, um, uh, sowing seeds is one of the most impacting things we can do for you our made health. Me start, John, you've, you've yeah. got me to start thinking about that too because I haven't grown anything since mm. I was a little kid. Mm. 
and that was just in the science class. We took the cotton and you put oh, a seat yeah, on top yeah, of it. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you put the seat on top yeah, of it and yeah. watch what it does. Yeah. In my apartment, because I'm assuming a lot of people are going to be very similar to me, living really in Tokyo, the center of it, and you're not going to come by land, period. Taking the little balconies we have and go vertical and put three or four pots there and doing that because everything else is available. You can get the compost. You can get the other things. But wouldn't you have to know where the compost comes from, too? You can buy can you buy it? Where would you be able to buy compost? Um, organic shop? soil. Um, you can buy um, organic soil okay. um, from different home centers around Tokyo. Okay. Yeah, that's all you really need. Okay. Um, and you can like buy Viva Homes organic or something seed. like that. Um, um, yeah, Viva Homes. They sell yes. um, like 25 liter bags of organic soil for about Where's the same size as a Starbucks Grande. Really? Coffee. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, um, yeah. See, I'm, 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 I'm you got me ready to start doing more. something like this. Yeah. Um, um, gardening's really, it's a really cheap hobby. Really, really it's super cheap. And one easy to do, too. Yeah. It's, not, it's not time consuming. No, no, no. No, no it no, isn't. Yeah. Um, I've grown leaves <laughs> that have gone from uh, seed to plate in uh, 12 days. What? Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, 12 wait. days. Without giving them steroids? Wait. No, no, no. <laughs> How do you do this? Um, wait, you yeah. said from seed to plate, to plate in 12 days. These were basically. Less than two weeks. Yeah, yeah. These were. Uh, baby leaves that I grew on the rooftop of Tokyo um, International School. Yeah, um, they had a rooftop garden. That's uh, on the first place that I started teaching there. And um, I got the uh, grade six kids to sow some seeds up there. This was like back in October 2012, I think it was. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I went back up, up to the rooftop and found that a whole uh, line of my new baby leaves, had just they just weren't there. So I went down to, down to the office and asked them, oh, do you know what's happened to some of the, uh, the leaves up on the rooftop uh, garden? They, they're just not there now. And they said, oh, yeah, we had them for lunch. They were really, <laughs> they were really, they were really tasty. Um, yeah, 12 days, yeah. And that was in- Leaves of what? Spinach? Um, um, was baby leaf, baby leaf baby leaves, which are basically um, uh, the fastest growing type of leaf. Uh, okay. You can pick them when they're about uh, about that long. Well, like what are they, the what are they good in? What do they, ha- they have? What is it? What is oh, it? Spinach? Um, uh, baby leaves, they're basically fast-growing leaves that, that you can pick when they're short. There's quite a few different kinds. There's a radish one. Okay. There's, um, yeah, there's a whole lot of different kinds. And what are they good for? How do they, what, what are they good um, for in your, your body? I mean, oh, what do they give um, you? You'd have to do a bit of research about that. But okay, okay. the fact that they're young and short means that they'll contain many uh, nutrients. As opposed to older, larger leaves. Yes. Yep. Yeah. 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 So um, depending on what time you start growing, um, spring's the best time, of course. But uh, yeah, we can we can grow food inside now. Um, If you have a heated room, okay, um, your room will be like a uh, a greenhouse basically. Yeah. So it'll be very humid too, in a way, so that Mm, you don't mm, have to worry about getting dry and the air you can keep it. Yes. So if you put some planter boxes just inside a large um, sunlit window, mm-hmm. um, and if you have the uh, heating on inside your room, you will hopefully still be uh, able to grow uh, plants now. <laughs> yep. Um, but the best time to go, um, the best time to grow, sorry, is about March. Um, okay. yep. To start? Yep, to start. Okay. Uh, spring. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. of course. Of and course. then you have about four months until the heat of the summer hits. And then uh, it's too hot during summer. Can't do anything, yeah. But then the next best time, uh, then the autumn and uh, winter uh, um, uh, growing season starts in mid-September, goes until 
uh, late November. Mm. Yeah, so um, here in Japan we have basically two four-month growing seasons okay. on both sides of the summer. Right. Eight months, that's decent, eh? That's a, that's a big deal. That's neat. That's good. John, before I end this podcast, mm. there's a question I like to ask mm. all of my participants in this podcast. And, <laughs> and the question is this. Knowing what you know now, if you could go back and meet back in time and meet the young John, what age would he be and what advice would you give him, knowing what you know now? Oh, that's a very simple question, Lance. Yeah, um, the advice I would um, give to my young self is learn how to grow food naturally. Um, I wish I had been doing what I do now when I was a teenager. I would have been a lot more healthy. Um, yeah, just learn how to grow food. It's because essentially um, we all need food. No exception. Everyone needs food. And the healthier that, that food is, the better for us and for the planet too. So yeah, that would have been the one big thing I wish I could have changed when I was much younger. Um, I've got start, I got started growing my own healthy food in my early 40s. Uh, um, better late than never. I was going to say, there's um, no bad time um, to start. Um, better late <laughs> than never. But um, yeah, that's one thing. I would oh. have been much healthier um, and happier too, I think, because I would have spent a whole lot more time enjoying much tastier, much healthier food. So and um, yeah. Wow. Thank you so much, John. Really appreciate it. I want to thank all of you for watching this podcast. Make sure you press like and subscribe. And never forget, it's all unknown, so continue to reach for the stars because you're too blessed to be stressed.